Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. What I'm going to do today is to try to look at some big picture issues. The first part of discussion looks at some demographic data and the second part looks at um, the findings of social research. The issue with um, demographic data, to understand what is happening in our society in a demographic sense, is that we have too much information and it's very difficult to distill that information to give a, a clear and um, simple understanding, a direct understanding of um, major trends. Um, this is my fourth opportunity to speak to an audience in the last week and, and I've been going around asking people their, their sense of some key issues before I even start. Like, what's your sense at the present time? Do you think that as immigration and population growth in Australia, is it low, medium, high, very high? What would you say? Low? I'm hearing low and a couple of highs as well. So that itself is interesting, isn't it? Because you, on some issues, you know, you'd be right on top of it. Like who's on top of the ladder in the AFL at the moment? So that's something that you, you'd get a pretty, pretty close to on that one. All right, so let's just then look at some of this. And the, the answer to population growth in Australia is actually very high. Like a very high rate of growth would be for Australia would be like 2% per annum and currently we're running at 1.7%. And if you just have a quick look at that graph, you can see that there's like three high points. Do you sort of see that over the last 25 years? We actually reached a high point in 2008 and then, then it fell. Uh, but it's grown again, perhaps somewhat surprisingly. And currently... Population growth is running at 380,000 per year. 380,000. Is that a bit scary? See, two and a half years and you've got another one million people. There's not many countries in the world, which I'm talking now about developed first world OECD countries that have got that rate of population growth. And that itself produces like major challenges for society. And then there's various factors that compound the issues with regard to that very high level of population growth. Australia has 26% of its population overseas born. Now that 26% means we're number one in OECD countries that have got more than 10 million people. We're number one. That would compare, say, another major country uh, of population growth is Canada, and it's about 20%. America is 13%. England is 11%. So we've got a very diverse, a young population in terms of the range of ethnicities. And as you probably know, about another 20% of the population has one or both parents born overseas. So we're getting towards half the population who are either first or second generation. And then, of course, that's not spread evenly across the population because in many areas there's very little impact of immigration and other areas there's huge impact. So we start with 26, then Melbourne is 33%, and then parts of Melbourne, even at the local government area, when we're talking of aggregations of 150,000 people, 
such as Greater Dandenong, we're getting about 60% of the population being first generation. So a very diverse and recently arrived uh, populations. We want to map these. In Sydney, there's greater concentrations of the overseas born, particularly to the western suburbs of Sydney. In Melbourne, there are a number of nodes to the west, to the north and the southeast. So Melbourne, the overseas born, is not as concentrated as in Sydney, but nonetheless major concentrations in Melbourne. Then, you know, as we sort of narrow the focus, we can find large areas of a place, a city such as Melbourne, where 80% or more of the population speak a language other than English in the home. For example, in Springvale in Victoria, there are more people who'll say that we speak Vietnamese in the home, 24%, than who'll say that we speak English in the home, which is about 20%. That's not the only language, but it's the main language spoken in the home. All right, so that's the first point. It's very diverse. And what we're seeing is a demographic shift which is marked in terms of ethnicity and it's marked in terms of the faith groups um, that we have in our community. For example, the the three main non-Christian faith groups used to be, like in 1991, was under 3% of the population. It's now about 6% of the population of the three main non-Christian faith groups, Buddhist, Islamic and Hindu. And growing very rapidly, 6% of the population, 27% of the immigration intake are members of these faith groups. So the point I'm making is that this is a society that's growing rapidly and is changing quite markedly. Um, Like, for example, the Hindu population in the last five years increased by 86%. Now, these are big numbers. Um, And we're getting to a situation where in 2001, let's say the Muslim population was under 300,000, by 2016, it'll be two-thirds of a million. Just again to indicate to you that this is like graphing the change over time. So these are the last three censuses, 201, 206, 211, and the first lot of numbers there is for Bankstown and New South Wales, and the second lot is for a Greater Dandenong here in Melbourne. And again, you can just see graphically the, the quite rapid increase. Understand this in terms of the multiplier effect, that if you get 100 people coming into the country they're not going to be spread evenly across the population, that they will be in certain areas disproportionately. And this is having sort of major impact in changing um, regions within one lifetime. Now, another major change that's occurred in understanding immigration and the demographic context is that We've got a break in the course of Australian history. For a very long time in Australia, governments sought only to bring people here who would be fully members of the Australian community. This is in contrast to what was happening in Europe 
after the Second World War where guest worker programs began. I'm sure many of you have heard of guest worker programs. Say, for example, Italians and Turkish people who migrated to Northern Europe um, in search of work. And they came not as citizens but as workers, temporary workers, who wouldn't be given the range of benefits that other people in that society had and who found it very difficult if they wanted to become citizens to become citizens. And of course that causes all sorts of problems down the track, like what happens to their children who are born in those countries, who are raised in those countries, but don't have the full rights to be in those countries. What happens there? Now Australia said we're not going down that path. We don't want to go down that path. And then there was a change that occurred in the 1990s and we're now very rapidly going down that path. So what is happening is that we're getting significant populations in this country who only have temporary residence rights and who do not have the access to the full range of benefits, social welfare benefits and others that other people in societies have. How many of these people are there? 6% in total. But if you look at just the adult population, because they're disproportionately adult, you're probably getting around 10% now. One in 10 adults is how I would estimate it, are now temporary, without full rights, have got the rights to apply for citizenship, have got the rights to apply for permanent residence, but whether they get it or not is, is you know, depends. Depends on a range of factors that are out of their control. Who are they? International students. Four, five, seven visa holders, people coming here to work for, say, four years. Working holiday makers, initially coming for two years, but again may want to become um, permanently settled at some point. New Zealand nationals. You know New Zealand is our number one source country for immigration now? 30,000 a year, most recently. And the issue with the New Zealanders is since 2001 they've been coming uh, and unless they come as immigrants, because they can apply to come as immigrants and meet the points test and then they, they come as immigrants, but they can also come by presenting their passports. It's like a law of return, Australia's law of return. Um, and we can go and live in New Zealand likewise. But the problem is that you will get communities, and it's happened, communities of New Zealanders established in Australia who do not have the full rights to the range of benefits, their children may be born here but the children can't go to university, for example, uh, without paying full fees and so on. So that's a major problem. And I'm sure you're familiar with this. You know, you sort of come up with a solution but there's all sorts of strings attached and then you start to understand what are the strings attached. And the other thing that's happening now is we're getting a, a significant population of asylum seekers who are also temporary. And the numbers there, like we used to say, well, the asylum seekers were small numbers, it's easy, we can deal with it, it's not a problem, don't get upset. But we've just seen yesterday, it's very hard to get accurate statistics. And one of the main ways you get accurate statistics is if someone from a department has to appear before a parliamentary committee and answer questions. So that happened yesterday, look at the age today. The number of asylum seekers um, who've arrived in the last 12 months this financial year is around 25,000. This compares with a previous peak, say, under the Howard government of 10,000, now it's 25,000. And the issue is that because the ones who've arrived since the 13th of August last year have not been processed, what's the government going to do with them? 
They're working on it. They're thinking about it. Because the numbers that have arrived are probably four or five times greater than they had expected. Imagine you're running a policy, and I'm sure you, you may have had, I'm not sure, but some of you may have had this experience where there's been a blowout of the magnitude of four or five what you expected. You expected 50 clients and you've ended up with 250 clients. This is the sort of the most recent figures on, on, on these temporaries and you can see we're getting towards 1.5 million. Uh, a very large issue here. And, and what's the solution? With the various categories, there is no solution at the present time on the table. And if there's a change of government, the new government will inherit some of these issues uh, and will have great difficulties in dealing with some of these issues. Now, another long-term change in our society we need to be aware of is what is called in the literature transnationalism. It's an issue of identity. Again, like you arrived in Australia in 1960 and you were here. You know, my people, we, my family came from Hungary. Totally cut off. How would you communicate with people back home? You write a letter. Very occasionally you save up money and you might talk on the telephone for three or four minutes because it costs that much money. And the idea of going back home on a regular basis, well, it was just too costly, prohibitive. But today what we have seen developed and will again see developed in greater force once the economies do recover, whenever that is, is the global labour market, the mobility of the sort of skilled workforce. But for all people, travel is relatively cheap. Access to telephones is very cheap. Internet, satellite TV. So that what you see developing, and this is like a long medium-term change, not an immediate change. Some of the issues I've dealt with are immediate issues. These are more medium-term issues. Of people who are physically in Australia but virtually not in Australia. They go home and they don't watch Australian television. They watch satellite or cable TV from wherever they choose to watch it from. They don't read the Australian newspapers. They read other newspapers, whatever they choose to do. So the issue here is the weakening of the centre. The weakening of the centre. And we see this not just in the immigration context. We see it in all contexts like what's happened to our mass media and what's going to happen to our mass media. Uh, the atomization and then the consequences of an atomization of people choosing their own pathways and clearly this is salient in the area of immigration but it's also salient uh, in many, many other areas as you know amongst with your own lives and lives of your children. But the issue here is the weakening of the centre and what does that mean for a society and the functioning of a society and the cohesiveness of a society. When people bond with a virtual reality rather than with a physical reality. Alright, so this is the question we have. The outcome and the impact of rapid population growth. Increased diversity... Increased proportion of the population who don't have full rights. Now, we used to call, talk of second-class citizenship. It's not a term that we use anymore, but it's not inapplicable. And then the medium-term impact of the weakening of the centre through transnationalism.
Let me now briefly talk about the Scanlon Foundation surveys. These are surveys of public opinion. So we have the demographic data. Well, what about the data with regard to attitudes? What do we know about attitudes? If you want to follow this up, we maintain a, a website. The Scanlon Foundation supports this website, which is developed at Monash University, which tries to make sense of some of the demographic data, which presents the findings of public opinion research and has a number of fact sheets, one-page fact sheets on some of these issues as well. So if you want to find it, just search for mapping Australia's population. And we try and update that on a regular basis. Now the objective of the Scandon Foundation surveying is to help us understand how is Australia coping with the impact of immigration? What is happening with regard to social cohesion in our communities, particularly where there's a lot of immigrants who are settling? And the Scanlon Foundation, for the first time, I think, in Australian research, is supporting annual surveys to track opinion. Until now, we really haven't had much surveying at all. We're miles and miles behind um, say what's done in Canada to track opinion or what's done in the EU or what's done in the United Kingdom. Like we're not even at the 10% level of understanding public opinion compared to these countries in terms of the investment and it's because of the investment of the foundation uh, that we've made, I think, some significant progress. What we've had now is um, five surveys and the sixth one will just be taken very soon with large samples, 2,000. And also, a number, we've done three surveys in neighbourhood areas where there's a lot of immigrants. We've now got like a database of more than 15,000 respondents, which in terms of social research is huge. Uh, so it gives us a really good understanding of, of what's going down and what's not. When we talk about social cohesion, we've got a model which looks at people's sense of belonging, belonging to their communities, belonging to Australia, whether they feel accepted whether they participate in community life. For example, are they involved in voluntary work? Do they participate in the political process? What are the levels of life satisfaction? And do they feel that Australia is a just society? And we're able to interpret this data in an international context, in the context of international surveying, so we understand where is Australia relative to other countries. And I just want to pick out four elements. I could, we probably have like 50 variables, but I'm just talking about four now. Uh, people's sense of belonging, social justice, levels of trust in government, views of immigration and the asylum issue. What's public opinion on these issues? Belonging and social justice. <coughs> One of the characteristics of Australians is a very strong sense of belonging in this country. It's true of third generation, second generation, first generation. People feel this is a good country, good country to be in. And often they're making those judgments not in an absolute sense, but in a relative sense, compared to where they came from. What's Australia like? And, and you know, what you're finding is that nearly three quarters, and you can see the consistency, these are all different years of surveying, the last five years of surveying. Nearly 75% of people say, I've got a great sense of belonging here. And another 
20% say to a moderate extent. So that gives us like 95% of the population say, I have a sense of belonging in Australia to a great or moderate extent. Now we don't want to have that in 20 years time because of transnationalism down to 40%, do we? We've got it up high, that's a good number. Only um, less than 10% say they've got no sense of belonging. It's actually well under 10%. Is this a just society? So a, surveying, a question that's often used in surveying is, um, is this a, a land where if you work hard, you get on, you get a better life? Now, in some countries in Europe, you'll get like 30% of people saying you can get on in this society and it's a just society. But in Australia, you're getting about 80% either strongly agreeing or agreeing. So again, that dream and that notion that if you work hard in this society, if you commit yourself, you get on, um, there's a strong endorsement of that. So again, very positive. And interestingly, when we look at recent immigrants, the recent immigrants will say that even more strongly. They believe in the dream. Trust. Okay, so this is where there's a hole in the bucket. <laughs> and it's a big one. Um, how often do you think the government in Canberra can be trusted to do the right thing for the Australian people? And we've now asked the same question um, on five occasions. In 2009, when in the period of Rudd government, there's a lot of enthusiasm, we're going to get this country moving again, yep. 48% said, you know, you can trust the government almost always or most of the time. And in the most recent survey, that was down to 26%. Now, in the context of surveying, where often you don't get any movement at all from one question to from one year to the next, and you've seen that, for example, on those two uh, graphs that I've shown you, on sense of belonging and sense of this good society, hardly any movement at all. Here you've got 100% change from 48% down to 26%, so a collapse in trust in government. With regard to immigration and views of the immigration intake, you know, immigration is not an easy sell. Unless you happen to be working in, say, a, a field of employment where immigration is very important. For example, you're a property developer, right? Um, or you're sort of involved in white goods manufacture, all sorts of, where you're dependent upon a growing market, yes? Then you're obviously going to be cheering for immigration. But most people, you know, what, what good is immigration for me? You know, it's causing more congestion. It's harder to get from here to there. The prices are being driven up. I'm a bit concerned that it might have an prospects on my employment or the employment of my children. It's not an easy thing to sell. And there's only two countries in the world where you're going to get a majority of the population saying, in principle, I support immigration. Australia is one. Can you think what the other one might be? Canada, yep. Thank you. Australia and Canada, Canada even more strongly than Australia. Like if you ask that question in England today, 80% of people would say no, no to immigration. And through much of the EU would again have strong majorities no. In Australia it's held up. There have been times where we've had 70% of people say no to immigration. And these are like times of economic downturn. But at the present time it's held up pretty well. So you're getting almost like a 60-40 split. I make the point, however, that 40 is a big number. Yep. And within that, you've got a core of like about 10% or more who are really head up about immigration. So that's, that's a volatile issue, immigration.
but currently we're still getting that 60-40 split in terms of general questions. However, however, when we come to asylum issues, you have sharp polarisation. We ask the question, like, what do you think is the best policy for dealing with arrivals by boat? And we give people four options. They should be eligible for permanent settlement, only temporary settlement, lock the people up and deport them at the first opportunity, or don't even let them land. And you only have 23% of the population who support um, permanent residence, 23%, one in five, compared to 26% who want to actually stop the people landing and another 9% who say send back the boats. And the largest majority, largest number, 38%, say only temporary residents. So only have 23% of the population who support permanent residents. Now, that finding is consistent. That's three surveys. And you can see that the data is pretty consistent across three surveys. Those are the proportions. And they haven't really moved much. It's polarised and it's fixed. Further, and this is very important, it's something that is very closely correlated with the parties that people support. So amongst people who support the Liberal Party, only 12% favour permanent residence, the right of permanent residence. Labor, it's 29%. And amongst the Greens, you've seen the shift and it's gone up. And amongst the Greens, 62%. So it's something that divides the community and it's something that politicians know that if they're short of votes, they can actually rouse people up and, and, and divide. At the moment, I would say, I don't know if you agree with me, it's not being much politicised, and I'm thinking, why isn't being much politicised? And the answer might be, I can only come up with two reasons, but we might follow this up in discussion. One reason, Liberals are so far in front, they don't actually need to sort of do much with this issue at the moment. And secondly, they're worried that if they actually raise it too much and raise too many expectations, which they can't deliver on, why do they need that? So that might be another reason. That, but if things got close you might find that people are starting to politicise this issue again. If things got close in the election campaign and the polls started to shift, um, then the issue might actually be um, picked up again because the politicians know that this is an issue that will win them votes if they want to run hard on it. Meaning, we're going to get tough on asylum seekers that will likely increase their vote given the state of public opinion. All right, the last part of this discussion, and I'll try and finish in about five minutes so there's time for some questions. What's happening in areas where there's a lot of immigrants? So that was the big picture situation. What are some of the things that we need to note about areas such as Hume, like Broadmeadows, um, and Dandenong, such as Springvale? What's happening there? And what we find is that um, indicators of belonging, sense of... Um, economic opportunity, um, satisfaction with income, they're pretty much like the national data. There isn't much variation, so positive. But when we look at personal trust, participation, experience of discrimination and whether the neighbourhoods are working well or not well, we're getting some strong negative findings. Let's look at belonging. 
Now, the way that we look at this data, we don't just look at numbers in abstract, 64%, 43%. We look at them in context. So we compare, first of all, national level findings with what findings we're getting in these localities, yes? And we want to compare like with like. So we compare third generation Australians at the national and local levels. Does that make sense? We're looking at everybody's Australian born, national and local. And we're looking at non-English speaking background, national level and local. And you can see, that's great. There's not much variation at all when you ask people about sense of belonging in the localities. Economic opportunity. There's only very minor variation. I wouldn't call that significant. So again, like people in the localities won't say that we're seriously dissatisfied with their financial circumstances, even though they may be, but they're not going to tell us that. So that's positive. However, when you look at trust, and trust is so important because if you can't trust your neighbours, where do you go? If you look at trust, um, look at non-English speaking background, 55% at the national level say you can trust people, but only 30% at the, these areas of low socioeconomic, high immigration. And when we compare low socioeconomic, which are not diverse, and ones which are diverse, where there's a marked difference in diversity. So diversity is a major challenge for building communities. Participation, again, like lower levels of participation. For example, have you engaged in voluntary work at least um, once in the last month? And at the national level, for non-English speaking background, it's 30%, and at the local level, it's 17%. And a whole range of indicators, other than compulsory voting, which is a great strength of Australian polity, people do have to vote, so there's not much difference there. But in other indicators, there's less involvement in the community, less involvement in voluntary work, even though we've got a very broad definition of voluntary work. We say it's help that you might give to other immigrants. And even then, it's much lower at the local than at the national when we look at experience of discrimination, have you experienced discrimination because of your skin colour, ethnicity or religion over the last 12 months? Nationally, 12% of people tell us, yes, we have. In these localities, it's almost double that, it's 22%. And then the outliers of people of the Muslim faith, 34%, or country of birth, it's people from the Indian subcontinent, 35%. So challenges, my last slide. What are the challenges? What are the takeaway points, at least that I take, and you may well have very different takeaway points? First of all, the growing diversity in Australia in terms of ethnicity, religion, um, linguistic segmentation. We're getting each year like an extra 1% or extra half a percent, but the cumulative impact of that over 20 years when you've got high immigration is very substantial. Diversity in the localities where there are a lot of um, immigrants, which are diverse communities, there's lower levels of trust. And one point that I haven't had a chance to discuss but is significant, amongst third generation Australians, that is those Australians who are born in this country and both of their parents are born in this country, there's a plus 20% negativity. Whatever question you ask, you're going to get a plus 20% negative. That's like the sort of the Pauline Hanson constituency of people who are disenchanted with what's happened in their neighbourhoods, disenchanted with what's happened. And it was true in our previous survey in the localities, which was three years ago, and it was true in 2012, that plus 20% factor. 
a medium-term issue is the weakening of the centre and should we be worried about that or not worried about it? And ultimately, how do we best foster communication, sense of shared national enterprise across communities? Okay, thank you. Well, thank you, Andrew, for that. It's just so revealing having that research. These are real numbers and it's real research. Very valuable for us uh, as we face those challenges that you've enumerated there. There might be some people here who have some comments. Uh, yes, uh, I've got one and two. One here. So just um, to your left, about halfway down, Andrew. I'm wondering if um, there is any survey results yet coming in about the impact of repeated political statements colouring the attitudes of the general population. No, I, th I think that's sort of like a loaded question, yes? Um, because you, you want to suggest that, you know, that the politicians are actually, um, they're like feeding negativity and so on. Um, and we, we will often have that sort of view propounded with regard to asylum seekers, that we actually like have a race to the bottom. And my view is different to that. I, I think that you, one of the problems that, um, people will fall into is that they're not listening. They want to simplify. They want to look for the demon. And the demon is the politicians or the demon is the media. And, and we're actually dealing, I think, with more fundamental issues. Uh, for me, it's very important to understand societies. It's very important to understand national character, even though it's very difficult to understand national character. And there's, a, for me, a contradiction at the heart of Australia. At one level, Australians are very open, welcoming of immigration. On the other hand, Australians are obsessed with border control. You know, it's not something that the politicians invented. It's been a characteristic of Australian society for at least 150 years. You know, Australia was the first country in the world to restrict immigration. That was in 1855 when Chinese immigration to Victoria was um, first enacted. That was the first country in the world to even come up with that notion that we're going to restrict immigration. Um, so one of the issues I think that you need to understand with regard to, say, the asylum issue, it's not politicians creating sentiment, it's politicians working with sentiment and to understand how that sentiment came into being and what are the limitations of what can be achieved um, given those realities. Thank you. Uh, just in the front here. Um, Andrew, yesterday we had a session on income inequality and uh, that talked about trust and how the greater the disparity between income led to uh, lower feelings of trust and how that caused a lot of, there were linkages to social problems. and. And this morning, I'm just trying to separate, you talked about trust as well and diversity and immigration and whether people trust, you know, in those neighbourhoods. Um, are, are there two forces in Australia, both leading to lower levels of trust or how would you separate income inequality across the work that you do? It's a complex issue. It's not a sort of simple one-line correlation. I think you, you sort of 
willing to concede that there's, there's no simple correlation because you've got like some parts of Australia which have um, relatively low incomes and are deprived and still have high levels of trust. So you've got functioning communities. It, it is possible to create functioning <coughs> communities. But one way of separating that is um, we were able to disaggregate low socioeconomic areas which were diverse and which were not diverse. Um, say an area like Frankston, for example, or others compare that with Springvale. And, and what that shows, and it's in line with a lot of international literature, is that cultural diversity adds a further dimension and a further challenge in that area. Um, so in, in communities which are culturally diverse and radically changing because of immigration within the lifetime of people, you have further challenges for trust. Uh, just down in front of you there. Uh, thank you, Professor Marcus. My name is Jocelyn Bignold and our organisation, Macaulay Community Services for Women, works across homelessness and family violence. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of um, the Victorian community sector reform. It seems to me, from what I'm reading, is that the, the government is saying the community sector needs to gear up for more um, problems across homelessness and family violence, in our case, and, and just more problems in particular. And they're asking our organisations... Uh, to be big enough to cope with the risk and cope with the increasing um, demand that's going to be placed upon us. But it just seems to me that the government's not planning for the population increase and why are they sort of predicting these problems in advance? Am, am I just being naive or is there something... Um, yeah, I'm just not quite even sure of my question, but it just seems yeah. like we're, we're, pre we're predicting problems. So we'd have to talk to, I guess, people in planning to sort of get the full view. So you understand I'm giving you the view from the outside rather than from the point of view of the planning end. But I think it was certainly the case that, say, in the 1950s, when government was investing heavily in large-scale migration programs, there was a lot more planning, a lot more involvement, a lot more in the, to ensure the support services were there and so on. Um, and, and what we're move, we've moved to today is a situation where it's much more laissez-faire. Like if you come here, you bear the risk and if you're working in that sector, you bear the sort of responsibilities. Um, like one of the sort of basic ideas behind moving towards an increased number of temporary migrants in this country is again you're transferring the risks onto the migrants because if there's a downturn in the economy, previously the government would have to bear the cost there's a downturn in the economy, increasing unemployment. The people have to work out how best to cope with that and if they can't find work, leave. Um, so I think that that's a really big issue. And, and I think even on the asylum issue, again, we've had a very clear illustration of the way in which governments have not been able to plan effectively to understand what's going on. And you'll have um, Aristotle talking to you late, later today. Paris Aristotle talking to you later today and he's the one who sort of knows this. But... You know, governments were thinking that uh, the number of migrants who might come after August would be a couple of thousand, and there was 20,000 who came. So, again, uh, it's a situation where governments, in a way, are not in control of the temporary flows of immigrants. For example, there's no control over the number of New Zealanders who come here. And similarly, there's no control necessarily on, on the capacity to deal with the asylum issue. Just wait, wait for the microphone. In just general population growth, they are telling us it is growing. So they know this in advance, but they're not planning for it. 
Right, so, it so, seems. so they're not providing the resources to be able to deal with that. And that's, that's really dangerous, isn't it? Because you get the blowback because you don't get, can't act, you haven't got the resources to deal, is that right? And there's all this resentment blowing up as well, like, you know, you try and catch a train and you can't, the train's not there, or the train's overcrowded or whatever. Um, just got one, I've got one, two and three, so. Thank you, Professor. Sorry, over here. That's in front of me about right. towards... Right, okay, good, thank so you, got stand it. Up. Yeah. Thank so, two short questions. Do you think politicians can have an effect on that sentiment? Uh, you said that they were tapping into it. Do you think they can affect it in a positive way? Perhaps that's loaded. And secondly, has Australia uh, absorbed these kind of changes in the past or is this significantly different to our past immigration history? Um, see, I, I'd question the extent to which politicians can have an... Politicians deal with a marketplace. Does that make sense if I use that metaphor? They haven't created that marketplace. They can nudge the marketplace in certain directions, yes? But they haven't created the market. They haven't created the demand. They haven't created the orientations. We're dealing with values that are lifelong values for many people. So whether you know tabloid television does X or whether politician does X, it, it, I, I think we have to understand that there's like a, there's a marketplace. Also to not dismiss the scale of problems and difficulties, but to understand that these difficulties are fundamental. To understand that what differentiates politicians and advocates is advocates will, or people working in particular sectors, you know your sector. The politician has to have an overview of all of the sectors and the balance between those sectors. Um, so I'm very much coming to you and I'm saying to you, understand that there's a limit to what politicians can do and, and also increasingly to understand that there's many questions for which there are no solutions or there's no right solutions, there's only bad solutions. And I think we're we sort of starting to see that as we start to understand the limitations on the federal government and the capacity of the federal government to fund various initiatives. And, and then to understand that the politicians actually can't come up with the answer, they can come up with a bad answer or another bad answer. That's my perspective and, and you, of course many of you would disagree with that but that's how I sort of come to look at this issue. Uh, the question was asked, you know, are some of the scale of these problems sort of unprecedented? Well, I say certainly the asylum issue is unprecedented because previously governments were seemed to be able to deal with the issues and now we're in a situation where governments can't deal with issues, can't even make realistic, realistic projections of what's going to happen in the next three months. Um, when they brought in those August 13 sort of changes, um, how many people would have said this is actually going to have zero impact? Do you remember they were talking about the Malaysian solution? They were going to take 4,000 people off to Malaysia that was going to solve the problem. Today we can see that, like that was kindergarten solutions, wasn't it? Um, you know, the kindergarten kids get off and you give them a problem, what's, what are you going to come up with? And that's what they came up with. We can see how unrealistic that was. So what, what we're really talking about is scales of problems for which there are no simple solutions, only bad solutions and other bad solutions. Uh, just in the middle of the room. Ah, yes. Um, 
as a recently arrived migrant, one of the problems, one of the questions that keep coming up in my mind and bothering me is that it seems to me far easier for me to uh, be welcomed into mainstream Australian society than Australia's own indigenous people. And that really bothers me. And um, I wonder in a study of social diversity and inclusion and all of that, how come there is no data on indigenous people? Well, there's any amount of data on indigenous people. Um, so I have to disagree with you. There's an organisation called Reconciliation Australia um, and they've done surveying and, and so we, we have lots of surveying data and we have any amount of uh, demographic data on Indigenous population. Um, we have excellent data on Indigenous population from university graduates to mortality to incarceration to um, residence patterns. All of that data is available. And further, um, one of the characteristics, I think, of Australian society since the 1970s has been very significant investment of resources in supporting Indigenous populations. Like in my university, Monash University, at one stage I was head of the sort of um, Indigenous programs just for a temporary caretaker basis. Um, but I was also involved in getting scholarships for Indigenous people to come and study at my university. And, you know, the scholarships were essentially funded by industry. We end up with more scholarships than applicants. So, again, that was an illustration of how you've got very serious problems and you're aware of these very serious problems. Goodwill and investment of very significant government resources and yet inability to come up with a solution that's workable. And, and we've got a track record of failure and success, failure and success, nearly half a century since government priorities changed in Australia with regard to the Indigenous population. Some of you may remember the hopes of the Whitlam government and, and how they're going to transform. Um, and unfortunately, there were some successes but many failures. Yes, yes. in communities, how come indigenous people is not part of that map? Um, They're not part of But But you see, I would say that they are part of it, but what I've been talking about is particularly the impact of immigration. So that's my brief for today and that's what we, we're doing with regard to surveying. But if you want to go to the Reconciliation Australia website and, and look up the work that's been done there on social cohesion and, and surveying, um, then it's substantial. Uh, just in front of, front of me, we have one, and then there's one up the back there next. Right. Uh, can you hear me all right? Yes. Yeah, um, yeah I'm one of the 26% uh, that was overseas born, so, and I've particularly enjoyed listening to your uh, presentation. But there was one area that I tended to um, uh, have doubts about, and that was the issue of um, whether politicians drive um, uh, community views. And looking at the figures of 12% Liberal and 29% Labor that um, support permanent residence for um, asylum seekers, you couldn't help but see the stark, the stark difference there. 
And I, I think every time I see Tony Abbott on television, he, he's always saying, we're going to stop the boats. And I think that must appeal to a lot of people. Um, and so what you said about people having lifelong views and uh, being difficult to change them, of course that's right. Um, nevertheless, there must be some influence um, by politicians, especially um, when they uh, continually pound the same, the same message. Yep. Okay, thank you. Can I just make one further point with regard to the Indigenous issue? To again un give you an understanding of the scale of the issues, do you know what proportion of the pop Australian population is Indigenous? Does anyone know? It's, it's currently 2.5%. I'm talking about population growth annually of almost that level. All right, so that gives you an indication because I said it was 1.7% growth per annum and about 43% is a natural increase and 57% is immigration. But it's, it's the way that this society is growing very rapidly and it may well be said we shouldn't be growing so rapidly until we actually dealt with fundamental issues such as Indigenous populations, but again, we're not sort of necessarily putting those resources there. Now, with regard to that, the question about politicians and cause and effect, you know, with greatest respect, it's simpler for us to say it's the politicians change the politicians and we're going to change public opinion. If you want to look at our survey reports and... Um, they're available on the website that I mentioned to you, Mapping Australia's Population. You can download them. One of the variables I look at is I look at a whole range of questions by political affiliation. And what you find is very strong correlations and very predictable correlations. So when Tony Abbott goes on television and says these people are illegal... I'm not going to say whether he knows or understands that they're not illegal or illegal, but that's what he says, and he says that to the constituency. He knows his constituency. They've done their market research. They know who vote Liberal. All right? So while I accept that you can shift people marginally one way or another, my understanding is that people do have values. They're not like randomly responding to the next piece of information that they... Um, receive. Even the choices that people make about what media that they will choose to watch is shaped by their values and then those values are reinforced. If I subscribe to The Age, it's reasonably likely that I'm going to have a set of values that are different to if I subscribe to a tabloid newspaper, right? If I watch the 7.30 report, or I don't know what the, the tabloid versions of that are, you know, I've made a choice and I'm, part of what I'm doing there is I want my values to be reinforced. So I don't know if you, some of you won't agree with me, but my understanding, and it's based on this public opinion research, and have a look at the correlations. You know, someone who supports the Greens has got a whole set of attitudes which differentiates them from somebody who supports the Liberal Party. And it's not true for everybody, but nonetheless the patterns are very clear Down the back. Thank you. Um, I was wondering about um, your data in particular on um, education as a way of helping us to understand social cohesion and how it's actually built. 
And if there's any opinion on the um, lack of common schooling experiences um, by the way that our education system is organized, um, and um, therefore, you know, if, if there's any conclusions um, around how we can help to bring uh, more socially cohesive and more socially purpose-driven schooling about, um, you know, doesn't just go to equity, goes to all sorts of other um, social problems and just experiencing diversity, if it's diversity of achievement levels, diversity of ethnicity, diversity of, um, you know, income sources, etc. So a, a kind of excess of the Australian population to common schooling, both for children and for parents, I must say. Okay, good. Like, I take two points from the issues that you've raised. First of all, like, what's the impact of education on people's outlooks? Um, and I think one of the important changes that are occurring in Australia in the medium term is increasing access to tertiary education. There's been, like, a very significant shift. I haven't got the exact numbers here, but if you look at the number of graduates we had from universities and other tertiary institutions in 1990 and what we have today, there's actually been quite a significant increase. And there's also a very strong correlation on whether you're going to have positive or negative attitudes to a range of issues by education. So if your level of education is up to year 12 as opposed to tertiary education, there's quite a strong divide in attitudes. So education linked with other factors is very important. The other point you've made is, is, I think, again, a fundamental point, which I haven't had a chance to touch on, is people's educational experiences. And again, probably one of the sort of worrying signs in Australian society is an increasing segmentation of education. Increasing numbers of children, for example, um, in, within certain faith groups being educated in um, schools of that faith group. Um, as distinct from the, the common Australian educational experiences and, and what is happening within these schools and to what extent are the government demands for a common curriculum actually being followed up on. Um, so that, ag again, is like, like a, a huge issue. And, and the, the problem becomes... Because you see that with the present Prime Minister, I would say that education reform has been a very high priority. Um, the Gonski reforms, but well before that I've heard the Prime Minister talking very passionately about the problem of entrenched disadvantage of schools which are consistently underperforming and what you can do with that. For example, the My School website was part of the initiative which was designed to highlight some of those issues, the issues of structural disadvantages and the impacts that they have on outcomes. And the difficulties that governments have had to um, fund those reforms. You know, I gave a talk yesterday at one of the universities and someone said to me afterwards, you know what, the cost of the asylum seeker is almost getting, the asylum seeker issue as it has now developed is getting close to the level of, if you didn't have that, you could actually fund the Gonski reforms. In the current budget, the estimate is $2.8 billion dollars um, going forward for the next financial year for asylum issues. And that's not the full figure by a long margin. So the point I think you made was education, the significance of education, how centrally important it is, how it's recognised. And again, we have a situation of how do you move forward on that issue? How do you deal with the funding aspects? 
if we have time for just one last one on the very back corner on the left. Thank you. Hello. Michelle Halsell, Hampton Park Community Renewal. Um, how do we engage non-speaking, non-English speaking background people? Hampton Park is next to Dandenong. We have over 80 nationalities in our secondary college. Um, our arts projects through renewal encompass, encompass some nationalities with a little success. Um, but I ran for council elections last year and talking to and door knocking, most non-Australians did not even know a council election was on or that they had to vote. These were long-term permanent residents that had to vote and so there was a high percentage of non-voting and fines. How do we change that around? One thing that comes to mind is, is one program that's sort of proven to succeed. Um, the Scanlon Foundation has been um, funding like experimental programs and one of these is hubs within schools. Do you all know about hubs within schools and the notion of that? Um, so th the idea there is to make um, a negative into a positive and then build on that positive and, and keep building on that. And, and I've seen examples of this also in Greenacre in Sydney. Um, so the idea is that the say the mothers who are from very diverse backgrounds as you describe it because these are very diverse communities, when they drop their children off in the morning, we're talking primary schools now, um, the mothers are invited in and there's like a coffee club and, and there's an engagement of the mothers across with each other and with the schools and then to use those then as a basis for say classes, English language classes or to provide pathways to education. So we know that there are programs that can be implemented and made to work and the government has now, I understand, funded 100 hubs um, on that model that was developed in the Hume area um, and they can make such a huge difference. Um, again, I recently heard like one of the principals of one of these schools saying we used to have a situation where we had to lock the classroom so the kids wouldn't run out and now we've created a welcoming and friendly and hospitable environment in which the kids are happy and they actually bring their mothers to school. So it's a win for the children, it's a win for the mothers, it creates pathways for inclusion, pathways for working communities. Um, answers are there. Issues how to fund them, how to implement them. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, We'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.